Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter 17, where we were last Sunday morning, Acts chapter 17, and this morning I'd like to begin reading in verse number 16, and we'll read the entire text of this passage, this encounter of the Apostle Paul in the city of Athens, so we'll read all the way through the end of the chapter in verse number 34. So if you would direct your attention this morning in your Bible to Acts chapter 17 and verse number 16, I'll begin reading and I hope that you'll follow along with me and pay special attention to the wording of the scriptures. The Bible says, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands." Neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not... Far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Forasmuch then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. 
In Acts chapter 17, this last half of the chapter, we find the Apostle Paul ministering in the city of Athens, which we introduced to you last week in the message. At that time in history, Athens was regarded by most people in the world as the seat of learning. It was a place where philosophers lived and where they prided themselves in having developed an advanced view of life. And they really believed that they understood the meaning of life. And they felt for themselves that they had discovered truths which others had not yet discovered or perhaps had ignored. Of course, the Apostle Paul came to the city of Athens, fleeing from persecution in the city of Berea, and he was waiting there for his companions to join him so that they could go on in the work that God had called them to do. But while he was in the city of Athens, he couldn't help but notice their worship, and he began to be moved about the great need in this city. Now, as he encountered the different folks in the city, and we'll talk about the schools of thought which are mentioned in verse 18 in just a moment, but as he encountered the different folks in this city, the Apostle Paul was given an opportunity to present the gospel. And his message there uh, in Areopagus, or Mars Hill as it sometimes is referred to, before all of these philosophers... His message is recorded for us here in the Scriptures, and it's instructive and it's helpful for us because it demonstrates the way to minister among people who we might classify as skeptics or people who are not familiar with the gospel message. And I want to point out that it's one thing to deal with people who are coming from a Christian background with some level of Christian knowledge. Maybe they grew up as children going to church and hearing Bible stories, and they already have a respect for the Bible, and they have some understanding of the concept of who Jesus Christ is and a little bit about the message of the gospel. Though they have not been born again, they have some Bible background. Or like uh, some of the folks that Paul ministered to initially in the city of Athens, the Jewish people who had some biblical background. They had some understanding of the character and nature of God, the biblical law, the promises concerning the Messiah. Ministering to someone like that is one thing, but ministering to someone who has little to no comprehension of the biblical message, has no background or understanding of who Jesus is. In fact, if you mention to them something about the story of Jesus, they might say, I I don't really know what you're talking about. If you ask them, have you ever opened a Bible? They might say to you, I've never really looked at the Bible. I mean, I know it's a book. I know that people read it, but I don't know much about it. That's a different kind of a person to minister to. And Paul was ministering to these kinds of folks And in this passage, it gives us some thoughts about direction for where to engage people in conversation, which is exactly what Paul did, by the way. It says that he went into the market daily, and in verse 17, it says that he disputed in the synagogue and with the devout persons and in the market daily. And that word disputed doesn't mean 
uh, necessarily that he, was, that he was having a heated argument, which is how we tend to think of the word disputed. It means that he was conversing with them. It means that he was exchanging ideas. He was talking with them about the things that he believed. And this resulted in an invitation for him to come then to Areopagus and present publicly in a public forum the things that he was teaching and preaching. Now, there's two schools of thought among these these folks that we might refer to as the secular Athenians, those who were not from a Jewish background or those who were proselytes, but these are people who would be more secular. They, they had a different way of belief. Uh, there was the school of thought that, that called themselves the Epicureans, and there were those who were the Stoics. And interestingly enough, these two school of, schools of thought still exist today and still are intermingled in a lot of different religions. But I'll just briefly give you uh, an idea of where where they were coming from. We're not going to give a comprehensive background, but these were were schools of thought or schools of philosophy by which people, and and in this case, Epicurus was the father of those who, uh, who thought according to the Epicurean way, and his philosophy was formed around this idea that we live here on this earth and we have senses which can experience pleasure. Therefore, the meaning of life is to experience pleasure. Now, Epicurus himself wasn't so much of a hedonist. He was more restrained in his philosophy. But those who followed after him, and by the time we come to Acts 17, we're about 300 years after the father of this school of thought, And by this time, the people who call themselves Epicureans are people who delight in satiating their physical senses. And so they are giving themselves over to all sorts of partying and revelry, all sorts of physical pleasure. To them, there are no limits. If it feels good, do it. That's the meaning of life. Just go after the things that you want to do. There's not really anything that's coming after this life anyway. So don't worry about it. Just have a great time. Enjoy your life. You only get one shot at it. So do your very best. Does that sound like a familiar philosophy, by the way? There's a lot of people who may not call themselves Epicureans that probably live on your street or you work with or you see out in society. This is a very common way of thinking about life, this Epicurean approach. The other school of thought were the Stoics, and the Stoics were just about the exact opposite of the Epicureans. And the Stoic school of thought still exists today among many people. And just to sum it up in brief, it's the idea that you must learn to remove your passions from life. You're going to have stuff happen to you. It's fate. There's nothing you can do about it. So the very best thing that you can do is learn to moderate your responses to get to the point where you have zero passion, where you have zero passionate or emotional response to anything. You can just be real, even keeled, and you can kind of disassociate yourself from your emotions. So if the Epicureans were all about pleasure, the Stoics were all about eschewing pleasure. They prided themselves in their own standard of righteousness. They pretty much stayed away from anything that could be considered fun. 
And they tried not to arouse their emotions in any way because they thought the ultimate was to get away from all of that. Now, that's an oversimplification of their philosophy of life. But as you can see, these are two very different schools of thought. Two different ways of approaching life, two different ways of answering the big questions that all men are asking. But what is true about both of these schools of thought is that when Paul began preaching and reasoning concerning the gospel, it was brand new to them. They said about him, what will this babbler say? He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods. We've never heard anything like this. This is an interesting message. We've not heard this message about Jesus. Now, I want you to understand that many of the people who live around us, even in what we regard as a Christian nation, are completely unfamiliar with the message of the gospel. Even many people who might call themselves Christians or say that they have a respect for the Bible have very little understanding of what's actually in the Bible. And when you begin to ask questions, they really have no understanding of who Jesus is or what the message of the gospel is. In other words, the gospel is strange to their ears, and to them it sounds like something that is foreign or weird, something that's coming from some other place. I've never heard this before. So how do you approach someone like this? And how do you deal with someone who is perhaps skeptical of the gospel message? Now, before we start, and I have five thoughts for you this morning, but before we start, I just want to make it very clear to you that I am unapologetically in agreement with the message of the Bible and the truth concerning the gospel. I also recognize that there may even be some people in the audience this morning who are not necessarily convinced. And it is certainly true that in the marketplace, outside the walls of this building, you are going to encounter people all the time who are not convinced of the truths of the Scripture. And so we have to deal with, now how do we approach folks like this? How do we have a conversation with them? What are some things that we can talk to them about? And we'll notice real quickly, I I don't want to read the entire text again because we've read it once, but I want you to notice several things that Paul dealt with which give us some places, some starting points where we can go to talk to people about this important message of the gospel. Notice, first of all, that Paul... Paul addressed this truth, and it's something for all of us to understand, that men are by nature worshipers. God has made men with a spirit. That means all people are spiritual to one degree or another. Now, I'm not saying that everyone has the same interest in spiritual things. I'm not suggesting that all people are going to be interested in the gospel, but I am pointing out to you that no matter what anyone says about themselves, everyone has some level of spiritual interest because God has made them body, soul, and spirit. God actually made us to worship him. God created man in his own image for the purpose of being a worshiper, a worshiper of the creator God. Now you'll notice that in this context, 
These individuals who lived in Athens did not know the Creator God. They did not know the message about Jesus. But Paul said something about them in verse 23. He said, For as I passed by and beheld your devotions... Devotions? Yes, they're worshiping. They were worshiping these gods. And he said, I was walking around the city and I noticed that you are worshiping. Do you know that in every age, every location, and every culture, men have shown an inclination to worship? Men are worshipers. Even naturalists or humanists, those who deny the supernatural, end up worshiping something or someone. The truth is that we are made and designed by God to be worshipers, and it is impossible for us not to worship. Now, I do want to hasten to point out that the the one who most often ends up being worshipped is ourselves. And most people end up in that place. But it's important for us to understand that no matter who we're dealing with, no matter what they tell us about their background, and people have all kinds of descriptors or labels that they use to to identify where they are at in regards to spiritual things, but it doesn't matter where they're coming from, they are designed by God to be a worshiper. And that's an important point for us to understand because that means that every individual who is created in the image of God, every human being that we talk to, has a need to know the God of heaven, has a need to come into the place of worshiping Him with truth and in their spirit. This also means, because men are worshipers, that whether they intend for it to be this way or not, there will always be remnants of the true God in every culture. And you and I, as evangelists, as those who want to share the gospel, should learn to identify and look for these remnants of the true God that are in every culture. They're they're there. If you pay attention and you listen, you'll find the clues because God has made men to be worshipers. The second truth that the Apostle Paul dealt with, which is very important for us to understand and learn how to wield in an effective way, is the truth that men exist in the presence and power of God. No matter who you are and where you come from, if you have breath and you have life, you are existing in the presence and the power of God. You may not regard it, you may not respect me saying this, but the truth is, if you just took a breath, it was given to you by God. You can protest all that you want and say that you you don't believe in God and He's not actually doing anything for you, but the truth is that you are beholden to Him because He's giving you your life and your breath. And by the way, the minute that He, the second that He says it's over, it's over. That's it. Now, The Apostle Paul pointed out several things in his message, and he was preaching about the unknown God because he happened to see there an idol. He saw a place where they were worshiping the unknown God, and he latched upon that, and he said, Aha! I know the unknown God, the one who you're worshiping, the one who you would like to know. Now, in their culture, what this meant was, in case there's anybody out there that we don't know about, we don't want to offend them, so we'll make sure to worship the unknown God. 
He says, I know exactly who the unknown God is, and he's the one that you should be worshiping above all else. And in verse 24, he refers to God in several ways. For instance, he refers to God as the creator there in verse 24. He's the one who made the world and all things therein. Now, again, this is something that people try to get around with their rationalizing and their systems of thought. And of course, there's different philosophies and approaches. And and today, naturalists and humanists would tell us, well, it all happened by accident and it came about by random chance. And and I'm just going to say that doesn't make the, the slightest shred of sense. You would not accept that in any other arena of thought except in this area where you want to deny the existence of God. It makes absolutely no sense to say that everything we see in the world happened by accident with no explainable origin or no explainable source. And the Bible tells us that God is the one who made it all. Not only is he the creator who made it all, but second of all, he is also the master over all creation. Verse 24 tells us, that he made all these things and he is the Lord of heaven and earth. And that idea of him being the Lord means he is the master. He's the one who is over all of creation. The Bible tells us in other places that he sustains creation. He actually keeps creation going. He's the one that's holding it all together. Verse 25 goes on and tells us that he giveth to all life and breath and all things. If you have anything at all, if you have life, if you have breath, if you have anything that is in your possession, he is the one who gave it to you. And again, men recoil at this. They say, no, I worked hard for these things. I, 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 I'm, the, I'm the master of my destiny. You are no such thing. The truth is that aside from the power of God, you are completely powerless. Men exist in the presence and power of God. Verse 26 tells us that, and this is an important point, I don't want to dwell upon it, but the answer to racism in our generation is a biblical view of the identity of God as the creator. Because the Bible says there is no difference between men. He is made of all of these peoples of one blood. So all the nations of men, by the way, the Bible doesn't use the word races to describe differences between people. It uses the word nations. And there is a very important difference. The truth is we are made from one blood. We come from the first man and woman that was made, Adam and Eve, and God made human beings. So when you see another person, they're not a different race. They are a human being. They may be from a different nation, they may have a different culture and speak a different language, but essentially they are the same as you, even if on the outside they appear to have some differences. It is God who made all men, and it is God, according to verse 26, who has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. This is speaking about the destiny of nations, and God is the one who says, all right, I'm going to allow this nation to rise, and now this nation is going down. You can look back over history and see that the history of nations, it is God who brings them up and God who puts them down, and it's God who puts the bounds of their habitation. That means he gives them the borders. Uh, He says, this is the place where you will be. It's God who does all of that. Verse 28, 
he, he makes it really clear. In him, we live and move and have our being. In other words, apart from God, we could not even exist. It is in him that we live and move and have our being. So I said this, the second truth that we need to operate according to is that men exist in the presence and power of God. These are self-evident truths that are written on the conscience or the heart of man that men know intuitively. And when you speak about them, it resonates in their heart. Even if they protest to you verbally, it resonates in their heart because God has written these things upon their heart. He's told them these things are true. And inside of every person, when these statements are made, there is something inside of them that says, that's right. That's true. Listen, if you say to someone who, who is an evolutionist, who is an avowed evolutionist, there's just no explanation for all these things that, that came about by just random chance and process. On the outside, they may argue with you, but on the inside, you have an ally that's saying, that's absolutely true, and you know it. And there's lots of secular scientists, by the way, non-Christians, who have come to that conclusion, who have said, there's just no explanation for the natural world, for what we observe through random chance and process. The Darwin's theory does not explain this. Amen. That's because these are self-evident truths. So men are worshipers. Men exist in the presence and power of God. Third of all, he makes a statement and he tells us that men ought to seek to know God. Look in verse 27. This is where he refers to this. God made us all. He made this world. He created everything that's in it. He's the one who is over all of creation. But verse 27, this is the reason that we know these things, that these things are so, is that they should seek the Lord. If haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Now, notice Notice that the, the conclusion we ought to come to is when we look at creation, there must be a God. There must be a maker. And I want to know this God. Amen. You see, this is the third truth that we should operate in. It, it's a self-evident truth that if everything that exists came about not by random chance and process, but by divine creation, I want to know this God. Romans 1 tells us that this is the conclusion that we ought to come to. We can look around at creation and we can see his eternal power and his Godhead. And for us to deny that is to be willfully ignorant. But we can see it in creation. And our response ought to be, I want to know that God. I want to seek after him. I want to know who he is. I want to have a relationship with him. It is not sufficiently for us or it is not sufficient for us to ignorantly worship the unknown God. Amen. There is no salvation in some kind of a blanket worship that's like, God, I don't know who you are, but I'm going to worship whoever you are somehow, and I hope that you'll receive it. That's not salvation. I mean, it was good that these people recognized that perhaps there was some God that they had missed. Now it was incumbent upon them. It was their responsibility to seek after this God, to know him, to learn him. So notice when it says to seek the Lord, it means there are answers that can be found. This is one of the things that we know as Christians, which is marvelous about our God, 
And it is that he is a revealing God. He is a self-revealing God. And actually, this is the basis of relationship. You can't have relationship without self-revelation. You, you have to disclose things about yourself to another individual, and they have to disclose things about themselves to you in order to have any sort of a give and take of relationship. And the truth is that God wants us to have a relationship with him, and because of that, he has disclosed things to us about who he is and what his nature is and what his priorities are and how it is that we can have a relationship with him. In other words, when God says that we ought to seek after him, He has also provided for us the means to seek after him. He has also revealed to us. It's not not like some kind of a a weird puzzle where you're going to have to figure it out and and the sadistic person who made the puzzle didn't actually put the, the, the answer in there. And you're searching and searching and searching and searching and there's no answer to be found. It's not like that at all. It's also not really that much of a puzzle because God has gone to great lengths to declare publicly and loudly who he is. He's put it in general revelation in the world around us, and he's also put it in specific revelation in the word of God. He's told us exactly who he is, and we ought to seek after him. Sometimes people will be coming to to the services, and they'll say, I just don't know. I just don't know. I I need to be convinced. I just just can't believe. I, I don't know what to do with this. Seek after the Lord. Seek after the Lord. And when you become convinced that the Bible is true and that God is who he claims to be, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Seek after him. But sometimes people are just sitting back in a passive sort of way and they're saying, well, when God wants to reveal himself to me, he will. He already has. And he has put upon you the responsibility to seek after him. Also to feel after him. And it's interesting that this idea of feeling after him is put in the passage specifically and paired together with seeking after him. It has the idea of an experiential relationship with God. It has the idea that this is a real relationship. Now we we understand that there are some differences in our relationship with God between Uh, that relationship and our relationship with another human being that we see, that we could touch, that, that we can sense when they're near. But in the same way, God wants us to feel after him. In other words, he, his intention is for us to have more than a theoretical idea of who he is. He wants us to experience his person. So seek the Lord and feel after him. And verse 27 says, and Find him. Find him. That means that it is possible for you to come to the place of absolute assurance that he is who he claims to be and that you have a real relationship with him. There have been times when I've talked with people who say, well, I just have no reason to believe in this God. I, I, you know, I just don't understand how you can believe. This. You know, it's all, it's all a fairy tale. It's all made up. It's just, you know, it's just stuff that's set in a book. It's not for real. And, and here's my answer is, no, I know that it's true. Well, how do you know it's true? Because I know him. I found him. I, to me, if you say God is not real, that, that's just as as as. Difficult for me to fathom as if you told me my wife isn't real. I would say, 
well, I, I mean, I beg to differ. I, I, I know her. I've spent quite a few years living with her. I, I'm quite convinced that she's real. But if you tried to argue with me and tell me, well, she's a hallucination. She's a figment of your imagination. She's just made up in a storybook. You're, you're imagining her. I'd say, well, you know, at some point, like, I don't know what more to discuss with you. She's real. You could take it or leave it. But I know that she's real. It's the same way with God. People are like, oh, well, this and that and this argument and this thing and this thing that I'm... I know that he's real. I don't know what else to say to you. You say, well, I don't think he is. Well, you could think whatever you want. You really can. It's a free, it's a free country. You can, you can have whatever opinion you want, but he is real. And what's more is one day you're going to stand before him. You're going to give an answer to him. So the third truth is men ought to seek to know God. The fourth truth, which he deals with, is that men should not be deceived about the identity of God. And this is a key point, because many people have the wrong idea about who God is. It's a confusion that comes about because Satan is a deceiver. And he wants to keep men from believing in the true God. He refers to this in verse 29, and he makes reference to something that one of their Athenian poets had said, and then he makes application, which I I really like how he takes aspects of their culture, and he draws it out and then makes application with biblical truth. And he says to them in verse 29, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. Now, I don't have time to deal with this in this morning's message, but that term, the Godhead, refers specifically to the triunity of God, to the fact that God is God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. The scriptures bear this out over and over and over again. And, and what he's presenting to them is a complex view of God. And this is something for us to internalize and to realize. So many people are trying to reduce God to something that they can manipulate and that they can understand and that they can easily explain for themselves. And they come upon difficult concepts like the triunity of God, the Godhead, and they say, oh, I I can't understand that, so I reject it. Well, that's silly. Would you really expect the God who made you to be completely within the grasp of your understanding? Would you expect that he would, be, he, he would be exactly like you could manipulate with your mind? But this is what men want. They want a God that they can formulate with their own mind. Really, they want a God that they could take and use some instruments and, and some materials and they could form him and say, there's our God. And why do men want to do that? Because they want a God that they can control. And this comes down to the heart of the issue. Men want a God that they can control because ultimately man wants to be God. And Satan will provide them with lots of deception to go in that path because he knows if they set themselves against God, then they are going to be responsible when they face the judgment of God. And Satan wants to destroy. He wants to get people caught up in error. The Godhead cannot be reduced to man's understanding. Sometimes as Christians, we fall prey to this, this this need that 
unbelievers sometimes express to us of, well, you have to explain it so I can understand it. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we talk in mystery language or that we not try to make things clear, but the reality is there are just some things that are difficult or impossible to comprehend about God. And, and then men bring up these, these false conflicts, these foolish things, you know, and you've heard them before, like, oh, well, can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? And then they go, ha, 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 I got you, I got you. That's stupid. That's, that, that is dumb. That doesn't even make any sense. Why would you say something like that? It, I mean, you're not even being rational or logical. I'm not trying to be insulting, but, you know, when unbelievers try to throw out things like that and they're like, that, that clinches it, that means God doesn't exist. All you're expressing is that you have no comprehension of who God really is. You see? So we run into this, but then as Christians, we fall into this trap like, well, you know, I don't want to speak about the Trinity because then somebody might become confused and, and they would need for me to explain that to them. And, and of course, the answer is you never will be able to explain that fully to anyone. There's, there's aspects of it which are beyond the pale of man's comprehension. I mean, here we are at the Christmas season. Does, how do we explain the fact that Jesus is completely God and yet he also became completely man so that he could taste death for us? Under, how do you understand that? Well, the only way we can really reckon with it is it's what the Bible says. I don't fully comprehend it, but I do understand why it is important. How do we even explain things like God knows everything that, that there is to know. How do we explain that he, that he has no limits of space or time? He is eternal. How do we explain these things? Well, ultimately, all we can do is state them as they are stated in the scriptures, and men have to decide whether they will believe it or not. Men should not be deceived about the identity of God, and the reason for this is that there are many false images of God which are sold by religion to the masses. And people are much more satisfied with a false image of God because it's more palatable to their understanding, and it seems less severe, uh, less difficult for them, and truthfully, men want to have a God that they can relate to more fully. Do you know that many religions are nothing more than man's devices to explain the God who is not able to be fully comprehended or understood? It's just a device to say, well, if you do this, and, and men, are, men are notoriously guilty of looking for systems. So, okay, tell me what I have to do in order to be saved. What are the seven things that I need to do? I'll do them, whatever they are. But the way of salvation is different than that in the scriptures. It is a belief system. It is a faith or a confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, which results in some doing. So it's totally flipped around. But today, as we're talking to people, men are often deceived about the identity of God. For instance, I, I have people say to me, this is probably the most frequent objection that I hear about God is, well... I could never believe in a God who would judge people for their sin. I just could never believe in a God like that. Well, 
there's lots of answers to this objection. But first of all, it's very simple. It doesn't matter whether you want to believe in him or not. You don't actually get to pick who God is and what he's like. He's revealed himself. We don't get to choose like multiple choice. Which of the five characteristics do you like the most? That's the God that I want. Doesn't matter what you like or dislike about him. He is who he is. But second of all, the truth is that when people say that, that they haven't really thought logically about that, the conclusion of that system which they've adopted for themselves. Because if you really didn't believe in a God who judged sin, then that means that God would be in a place of complete powerlessness to judge or bring equity into a world where great uh, inequity and injustice exists, God would be powerless to do anything about that because he could not, by definition, judge sin. And the truth is, when people say that, they don't really want a God who doesn't judge sin. They would say, oh, no, no, no. I mean, there's some sin that God should judge. What they mean is God shouldn't judge my sin because I'm not really that bad. All right, so you have to follow that to its end. But understand, many people are deceived about the identity of God, and it is our job as ambassadors of Christ to make it clear who God is, which is what the Apostle Paul was doing. But then, number five, as we're dealing with people who are skeptical, I want you to understand this truth. Men have reason to obey the gospel. Now, the gospel is the good news that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for our sins, fulfilling the scriptures. And when people understand that they've sinned against God, when people understand that they're guilty before the God of heaven, the one who created them, the one who gives them life, the one who grants them every breath that they, that they breathe, then men must understand, I'm responsible before this God. Now, notice that he says something about God in verse 30. He says, the times of this ignorance God winked at. And I don't want you to get burrowed down in the wording there in verse 30, but I want you to understand what he's communicating is that God has been merciful. God has been patient. God has been, God has been waiting. He's been giving time. He's been giving space. And he has. God is a merciful God. When you think about how merciful God was in your life, do you know what you deserved? And I deserved the very first time that we disobeyed God's law brazenly. He should have taken our life. That's it. You're done. We were at that moment guilty of the whole law. And we were completely deserving of condemnation at that moment. But then you think for a moment about how many times you have broken God's law. How many times you have been a transgressor. And think about the mercy of God in your life. And why is God so merciful? Because it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. God has been merciful. You have experienced mercy. Sometimes I'll talk with people. I've never experienced God's mercy. Oh, my friend, you're experiencing his mercy at this very moment. While you're blaspheming his name. While you are protesting that he does not exist and you are not responsible to him. While you are proclaiming brazenly that you're never going to stand before him. He is even now giving you space to repent. Do you not understand his mercy? He also brings this thought to us in verse 30. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. God has been merciful, but time is short. 
And all men everywhere should repent today. If you are in the sound of my voice this morning, and you are comprehending of the gospel message, and you have never been born again, I can tell you without reservation that the will of God for you today is that you would repent and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Jesus Christ today. It's the only way of salvation. You say, but I have plenty of time. I'll wait. No, my friend, don't presume upon the mercy of God. If you understand this message, today is the day to get right with God. You ought to obey the gospel. And in fact... To comprehend the gospel and refuse to obey the gospel is the greatest transgression of man against a holy God. And we ought to be reminded in verse 31 that judgment is coming. The day is coming. He has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. The day is coming when God will judge those who have turned aside from the truth of God, those who have worshipped other gods, those who have rejected the knowledge of Jesus Christ will one day stand before the Lord that they have rejected and they will give an answer for their blasphemy and their rejection of Him. That will not be a pretty day. It will be a day of terrible judgment and yet... I propose to you that all those who are the blood-bought children of God will rise up in agreement on that day and say, God is righteous in His judgment. That judgment is coming. And I'm telling you, this is another thing that is written in the heart of man. Man knows that the day is coming. He's going to give an answer to a holy God. And if you have that fear in your heart today... Seek Him with all of your heart. Don't turn away from His voice that is calling out with mercy because I'm telling you this morning, you would rather have Him be your Savior than your judge. Judgment is coming. But then He points out to us this truth in verse 31, and this is where He lost the audience. They were with Him up to this point. But at the end of verse 31, He said... Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead. You see, men have reason to obey the gospel today because Jesus not only died in our place, but he raised from the dead. He didn't stay dead. He's alive today. He's shown his victory over sin, death, and hell And His resurrection is an assurance of His power to save us and to grant to us resurrection one day. There is a hope of something that is beyond this life. And many people at this point, they say, that is so fanciful. That is so hard to believe. But I want you to put on your own shoes of philosophy for just a moment. So then what you are saying is, this life is all that there is? There's nothing beyond this life. This is it. And when you die, that's the finish line. There's nothing more beyond that. Okay, if that's what you believe. But what if you're wrong? Just for a moment, consider what if you're wrong and the Bible is right. Shouldn't you reckon with that truth for just a moment? 
You see, he, he pointed out to them that men have a reason to obey the gospel. Don't be afraid in a culture of people who many are ignorant of biblical truth. Do not be afraid to point out to people what the Bible says and their obligation to obey the gospel. They may not fully comprehend it. They, they may not yet have come to the place where they understand it all, but they do have a responsibility to obey the gospel And the Spirit of God has a way of using that spiritual truth in their heart to resonate with them to say, that is the truth. I need to find out more about this. I need to seek this out. Now, what was the conclusion? Sometimes, you know, we're always looking for the result. What would be the best way to present the gospel to get the best results? Well, notice the results. Verse 32, some mocked. It doesn't matter who you are. The Apostle Paul is one of the greatest gospel preachers to ever walk the face of this planet. But some people mocked. Some people said, you're an idiot. You have no idea what you're talking about. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. If you can't handle people insulting you, then you're going to have a hard time being an ambassador of Christ. Because you're going to have many people say to you, I don't believe it. I, I, you haven't convinced me. And, and sometimes as, as, as messengers, we think, well, I have the full responsibility to convince this person. That's not entirely true. You have the, message, you have the responsibility of making the message clear. They have a responsibility to respond to the message. You cannot force them to do that. And the Holy Spirit also has a part in this of bringing conviction in their heart. And that's something that you can't do. The Spirit has to do that. But understand with me, some people will always mock. Some will always say, oh, no, I'm not interested in that. That's that's silly. It it hurts when you've shared the gospel with someone, when you've bared your heart to them, when you believe that you've made plain the truth and they just walk away. But mark it down. It's going to happen. A second group of people, there was a group of people that said, we will hear thee again of this matter. We're curious. We're not sure that we understand exactly what you're talking about, but this is intriguing. I'd like to talk to you more about this, Paul. I want to I hear more about this. And, and it's a wonderful thing when you have a gospel conversation with someone and they say, let's talk about this again. This is really interesting. You know, I had a friend, my grandma. I, I had a co-worker way back who mentioned something to me about this, and I'm kind of curious about it. Let's talk again. Can we do lunch sometime? So what do you do with that person? Hey, meet with them as many times as they want to meet. Talk to them about the gospel truth. Keep giving them more truth. Who knows? Maybe they'll get saved. But then a third response. Some people, verse 34, clave unto him and believed. Some of these people said, that is the truth. That's what I want. I want that truth. And they believed on it. They clave to him. Their lives were changed And they experienced a relationship with God. They experienced what it was to be redeemed by the sacrifice, the blood of Jesus Christ. And what a joy it is when we preach the gospel and some people will turn to Christ and be saved. Even among skeptics? Yes, even among skeptics. I was just listening to an interview the other day and the the author who was being interviewed had written a book about people who had been atheists but had become believers in Jesus Christ. 
And she'd interviewed something like 50 of them and then identified patterns in their life of how it was that they became convinced that they were wrong about the existence of God and then changed their mind and became believers in Jesus Christ. It was a fascinating interview, but it left me with this thought. There are lots of examples of people who used to think one way and now they think a different way. In fact, if I'm not wrong, there's a room full of people just like that who are here today who at one time were in rebellion against God, who were sinners against God, and were confronted with the gospel message and realized this is what I ought to believe, and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and today you could stand and give a testimony. I do believe, and God has changed my life. And I hope that's your testimony today. Now, two applications, and then we're done. And I, I appreciate your patience this morning. I preached longer than I wanted to, but two applications. First of all, if you've never been born again, if you've never believed on Jesus Christ, if to you the gospel sounds foreign and you say, I don't, I don't understand what you're talking about, Pastor. This doesn't make any sense to me. What should you do? Seek the Lord. Feel after Him and find Him. Get in the Word of God and seek the answers to your questions. Get a hold of someone and say, I don't understand this, but I want to understand. Can you show me in the Bible? Can you help me to, to, to come to grips with this? Because I want to follow after Christ. He ought to be sought after. This morning, if you leave here with nothing else, leave with a resolution in your heart. I am going to seek after God. If you seek after Him, you will find Him. He's not hiding from you. He's not trying to keep you from salvation. You come to him and you will find out. The second application. Most of us who are sitting here this morning have believed on Jesus. And we are ambassadors for Christ who are engaging a culture that is increasingly filled with people who are skeptics. And sometimes we feel threatened. We feel out of our element. We feel afraid to share the gospel with people. So the application this morning is the five truths that I've given to you ought to give you some confidence and some material to move forward. To be able to interact with the people around you and share the gospel with them. You say, well, everybody's a skeptic. Nobody really believes. Don't worry about it. Just share the truth with them and trust that God is going to work in their lives and you might be surprised by the response that you get. Who would have thought that Paul would come to Athens and by the time he left, there would be a group of people ready to gather together and become a New Testament church because some of them had trusted in Christ. In the most secular, anti-God city in that time in the world, there were people whose hearts were prepared to to hear the gospel and respond to it. Do you think that God has stopped working? That God is no longer drawing men and women to himself? All around us, there are people who want to know the truth. So let us go forth with boldness and confidence that what we have believed is true. God's answers are right. And the gospel still fits for every person that we encounter in this world today. Let us go forth with that confidence.